Welcome to Staying Connected, a podcast about UK-German friendship. There's a famous quote, the first casualty of war is truth, or as Sun Tzu says, all warfare is based on deception. There is an appalling war going on in Europe, Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine. That's why we've opted to have a British-German discussion about how to deal with lies and deception on social media. This really concerns us in our daily work. When using the embassy social media accounts, we often encounter disinformation. During the pandemic, we were sometimes tagged by anti-vaxxers sending false reports from Germany. Today, we don't only see Russian bots. We see actual embassies worldwide posting misleading pieces of information. In some cases, at least, these posts have been reported and subsequently taken down by social media platforms. Who profits from disinformation and how? What could be done to counter it? Should we just focus on sending our own message as clearly as possible and leave the policing of fake news to social media platforms? Are the German and UK viewpoints on this issue similar? We'd better ask our guests. Both are experts on disinformation. Shayan Sadarizade is a journalist at BBC Monitoring, who reports on conspiracy theories, cults, and extremism. Hello, Shayan. Hello. Felix Karte is a senior policy advisor at Reset. Reset is an international philanthropic organization supporting projects at the intersect of tech and democracy. Hello, Felix. Hello. We are happy to welcome as our moderator, Stefanie Bolzen, the UK and Ireland correspondent of German Daily Die Welt. Stefanie, over to you. Thank you very much and delighted to see you both. And I'm, I'm very excited uh, listening to you talking about such a very, very important uh, issue, the issue of disinformation. And Cheyenne, if I maybe may start with you, I can see on your Twitter feed how much and intensely you are watching and monitoring what's going on in the context of the Russian war in Ukraine. Could you give us some recent examples of disinformation in this context? Yeah, I mean, the Russia-Ukraine war has been what I would say the third major global story in the last couple of years where disinformation has played a pivotal role in how the story is covered and how it's viewed by ordinary people. First was COVID and second was the US election, where basically online misinformation was a driver of events, not just something that plays in the background, but a driver of events. And the, and, and the war in Ukraine is, is the third example in just a short space of time where misinformation, online misinformation has played a pivotal role. And there's, and there's different angles to it. There, there's a state side to it. And that basically both Russia and Ukraine are taking part in it, obviously, because a war in the year 2022 in the 21st century is not just conventional warfare on the ground. There's also an information war. And in the digital age, the information war matters almost as much as the real war that is happening on the ground. And both sides want to win it. And both sides, because they're involved in a war, they think everything and anything is justified, whether to counter the other side or give the morale boost to, to their own side. So for us as foreign observers, as people who are not particularly involved in the war, and for journalists like me who have a duty not to, not to take sides and to report the facts, it is, it is a fascinating, fascinating balancing act between How far do you go into it in the sense that there's a war going on and obviously the two sides want to play the information war. So to some extent you say, okay, that's, that's normal. That's, that's just, you know, 
war propaganda and to what extent you think it is actually harmful misinformation that has to be countered. I think that initially when it when it began, uh, it was basically the same thing that has happened with any other major global story that has a misinformation and that, and, and that is the internet basically going at uh, any random person on the internet, either for, and most of them basically just for clicks, for likes, for retweets, for shares, for online clout, just start posting content, videos, pictures, uh, claims online, and they basically have no basis in reality. And there was so much of it in the first month, I think, above and beyond anything I'd seen before. Uh, obviously, this is not the first war in the digital age, but compared to the other ones that I'd also seen and monitored, this was on a different scale. By the time we went to the second month and, and the war basically intensified and became basically part of the daily routine for, for us journalists, the state side of it became a little bit more uh, a little bit more apparent. So we had the story in Mariupol, the, the maternity hospital that was um, that was shelled, and some AP journalists were there at the scene immediately afterwards and took pictures of what of what had happened. And because it was obviously such an emotional story, and so difficult for some people to understand why a maternity hospital had been hit. It was then when the Russian side basically started spreading what I would say is low level, frankly, and very basic misinformation to, to, to the extent that they took pictures of what AP journalists had taken from, from the scene and claimed two women, two completely different women were the same person and they were crisis actors and what had happened was not real and they'd been paid or they've been hired by AP journalists to, to act in front of cameras. It went to the extent that not only Russian embassies on, on social media, but also the Russian ambassador to the UN held up the same picture. And it was really fascinating to, to follow it because that a day before all of this happened, the day on, on the day that the, that the attack happened, we could see on VK and on Telegram, the two main social media platforms where information about this war first goes, goes viral both very popular in Russia and Ukraine. We could see Russian users on Telegram and VK starting this narrative of, you know, this, this is all fake and these two women are, are the same people and they've been hired to act out. The Russian embassies and the Russian ambassador to the UN and the foreign minister, uh, Sergei Lavrov, they repeated the exact same wording. But it wasn't like they, 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 they sort of invented something and, and they, they, they have to get together and think about how, how, how we counter this. It literally took what uh, Russian Russian users and Russian channels on Telegram were posting. Uh, in fact, the, I, I, I have a picture of the Russian ambassador in the UN holding up a picture of a Telegram post by a very well-known um, Russian Telegram account. Basically, just repeating it uh, word for word. So it wasn't very complex, it wasn't very sophisticated, but still it had to be answered. And the second one was definitely Butcher. Uh, that, that, that even took it to a higher level. And again, I would say that was very, very low level very in terms of sophistication, very easy to counter. However, they, again, a video of what happened in Bucha after the Ukrainians take control um, goes viral on the internet, a very low resolution video. Anybody could easily just look for the high resolution version of that video, which was on YouTube at the time, and, and just see that the claims that had been made that the bodies on, on that particular street in Bucha, that one of them was basically moving their arm, the other one was, was sitting guard, but they were, you know, actors and somebody had been hired to drive down the street and, and film these actors. Anybody who watched the high resolution video could easily see it was nonsense. But again, Russian Telegram takes the low resolution video that had gone viral in early April, early April 
and makes this claim. And then the Russian embassies and Russian officials repeat it immediately. So what I would say is what we've seen throughout this war, and by the way, the Ukrainian side has done it as well. I mean, Ghost of Kiev is probably the most obvious one. So I would say the, the, the two aspects that we've seen, the state side, which is part war propaganda, part trying to basically muddy the waters. If, if you think you've done something that is unacceptable to public opinion globally, and you just, you don't try to completely counter it, you just make sure that there's enough out there that creates doubt in the minds of people who have, you know, who have doubts about their own authorities, about their own governments, which by the way, we actually encourage here in the West, skepticism towards authority and power. And that, and that for them does the job. It doesn't even matter whether it's very high level or very, very complex. And then there's the sort of ordinary online user side of it, which is for clout, for sometimes actually for money, for whatever reason, you just jump in. There's a big global story. Millions of people are, are, are paying attention. How can I make sure that I get some clout or some money or some profit out? Felix, if we, if we go away uh, for a moment from the, the Russian context and look at the challenge on the issue of disinformation on a, on a global stage, is it possible to kind of quantify where and who is more susceptible for disinformation? Well, that, that is a very big question, <laughs> especially when we really now try to, to focus on, on the global level. I think across the board, susceptible are usually the most disenfranchised groups or groups that feel left out, left aside. That's not, not necessarily a question of economic status very often. I mean, the so-called uh, raging old white male, for instance, are often uh, economically quite affluent, but still very susceptible to, to narratives and content that portrays government as, as like conspiratorial entities trying to take advantage of them uh, with some like vogue or hyper-progressive agenda and blah, blah, blah. So I, I think that it's usually those groups who feel disenfranchised and left aside in, uh, across countries. Then, however, if we look at who is most vulnerable, it is usually indeed uh, those communities, those groups in society, society that are also like outside uh, the information sphere most vulnerable. Like, for instance, refugees now in the Ukraine war, refugees fleeing to, to Europe, uh, to the EU, um, were a major target of, of disinformation and hate campaigns. It's very often... Uh, women or female journalists, like looking at the intersections, um, who are who are most targeted by hate and disinformation online. So vulnerabilities or general vulnerabilities kind of stretch into the, this online sphere. Mm -hmm. And and Felix, um, you you are looking also a lot into the say policy side and technical side of how to counter disinformation. If you now go back to the example of the um of the of Russia's war in Ukraine and our I, I think sometimes almost naive idea that you could really counter Russian propaganda. Do you think it's possible as much technically as culturally to convince the Russian audience of the, the audience of the Russian propaganda that actually what they are seeing and hearing and believing is wrong? I don't think that is the job of tech companies necessarily uh, to change people's minds. However, um, short of changing people's minds, they could at least stop amplifying uh, Russian propaganda and other harmful content massively, basically increasing the audiences for such content by, yeah, by the factor 10 or 20. I don't know how, you know, how fast algorithmic 
recommender system, your recommendation tabs in YouTube, on Instagram can, can amplify content. And one thing I wanted to uh, add to what Chayan said um, very succinctly in the beginning um, is that I don't, I believe that the information for a war along predates the actual war in Ukraine. Russia has been building up its uh, influence operation against Ukraine for many years, at least since 2014. Russia spends hundreds of millions, if not billions, into its like propaganda machinery, disinformation campaigns. I previously worked for the European External Action Service, the, the EU's diplomatic body, and uh, a group of my colleagues there ran a, a unit called the East Stratcom Task Force, and their job was to document as many cases of Russian or Kremlin-aligned disinformation as possible every year. And I believe since their inception, they collected about 12,000, 13,000 cases of Russian disinformation. I think up to 9,000 of these cases were targeting Ukraine. So basically, Russia's info war against Ukraine has been a long time coming. And what worries me, and has worried me even before the war started, is that uh, U.S. tech companies have been complicit with uh, with the Kremlin in, in facilitating and building up these operations. In fact, the Ukrainian government, I was there last summer um, in Kiev, uh, many times has asked YouTube, has asked Facebook, has uh, asked Google to step up their content moderation efforts in, in Ukraine, to shift their content moderation operation from Moscow to Kiev in the first place, so as to also be accessible to the Ukrainian rule of law and cooperate with Ukrainian authorities and experts. But they haven't done any of this uh, simply because it would have negatively affected corporate profit margins. And yeah, so I, I think that's a worrying trend that hopefully we will now address um, as the European Union with the so-called Digital Services Act and also in the UK with the Online Safety Bill. Shayan, if you if move away now on the other side of the Atlantic um, and look at the US, I mean, there are staggering numbers of voters who believe Donald Trump's accusation that uh, the, the last election, the election he lost, it was actually fraud. What is the challenge there to globally, not only in the US, but also in, in our countries in, in Europe, globally to democracies, to the context of disinformation and, and elections or democracy? Yeah, the US is actually... Um... Uh, a unique example in that sense, because the US, as much as a powerful and great democracy that it is, it has been dealing with a very toxic culture war between the left and right conservatives and liberals for years and years now. And that toxic culture war has consumed every aspect of public life in a way that, frankly, is not similar to any other Western democracy. And the power of that culture war is so strong that you can you can easily see how the two main parties, even the mainstream wings of the two parties, basically, in a sense, are fighting it. Uh, it's not just something that is limited to one wing of, you know, one more extreme wing of one party or more extreme wing of the other party. It's basically, it's an all-out war. I wouldn't call it a civil war, but... Frankly, I mean, it's, it's not that, that different. That doesn't exist in other Western democracies. It doesn't exist in the UK. It doesn't exist in France. It doesn't exist in Germany or Australia or Canada. Um, obviously, political disagreement does exist. And it should in any free modern democracy. That's the, basically the essence of a democratic state where you've got, particularly in many Western democracies, not in Germany but or in the UK, Although, you know, it varies from, from one country to another. Either you have a two-party system or you have a multi-party system. And by the way, when you look at the rates 
at which conspiracism and conspiratorial thought is accepted in different parts of the world. It's a global phenomenon, obviously. And it's not a new phenomenon again, you know, conspiracy theories and misinformation have existed since humans existed. It's just because we live in the digital age now, it is so easy to, to spread. And, you know, within seconds, within minutes, any claim from any part of the world can be translated in multiple languages, can, can travel across boundaries and borders. So that's basically what's driving it. But in America particularly, and I honestly don't have a good answer to it as to why. Uh, you know, I've been asked this question many, many times. Why? Why is it that conspirator conspiratorial thought is so popular in America? I honestly don't know. Obviously, as I said earlier, there's an aspect of in, in a free society in the West, we encourage skepticism towards power and authority. And that's a good thing. And as a journalist, that's one of the first things that I learn. Be a skeptical, always. But also, again, there's a limit to it. You know, you, you, you're skeptical when the facts run counter to what a, a person or an an, a, a powerful authority is claiming. But when the facts are not there, obviously, you go with the facts. When it comes to the election, I mean, the facts are crystal clear. It's basically 2020 story now, but we basically, our team in, in, in BBC News, we have a tiny team that looks at these types of claims. Every claim that was made, we, we checked, not because we wanted to prove it false, but we genuinely looked into them. There's really nothing there, not on the scale that would, not only did we not find anything, but even if there, there was, you know, some level of fraud in some county or some town, it was nothing on the, on the scale that would, that would flip the election outcome. But the reason it still persists is because, again, as I said earlier, there's a, there's a mainstream culture war between the Republicans and the Democrats, liberals and conservatives going on in America. And when you're, when you're in that type of situation, reason and logic and facts go out of the window. It's basically, I'm on my side, um, my side is involved in a war, and I'm going to take whatever my side says against the other. I don't care. Me being a representative, so to say, of what you call the legacy media or mainstream media or whatever, I, I mean, I find the work that the BBC has been doing and is doing on really looking into every little fact and trying what you call the, uh, the fact checking. It's, it's such a crucial, important work. But I still think sometimes we in the media, we can't, we are almost helpless to counter this. Which brings me then to the question to both of you, what can be done? And I, I think it, it leads back to education and how young people learn how to deal with media. So I'd be interested to hear if you have seen, whether in Germany or in the UK or somewhere else, examples of so-called good governance, good ideas and initiatives to try to teach young people how to understand what is what is right and facts, right information and facts, and what is what is disinformation? I, I want to like um, qualify your question a little bit because I believe and I think that there is actually an empirical basis for, for this belief that older people are more susceptible to digital and disinformation than younger people, in fact, and that this very crucial media literacy uh, work needs to target them perhaps even 
more than than, than pupils than, than than youngsters these days. Um, I also want to say that um, I think the fundamental challenges we're dealing with, the, the fault lines that are running through society increasingly visibly can be combated with facts only. It's not just about understanding whether a certain, if an RT article is factual or not, because very often disinformation campaigns, conspiracy theories, they cater to sentiment and to emotions and not to, to reason, basically. So I think in order to, uh, we need to do much more research actually to understand uh, where those fault lines um, in are running and how they're being um, exploited and targeted by, by threat actors, by, by organizations, groups, governments that spread this information. And um, in order to be able to, to do that kind of research, to get a more solid understanding on which we can then also like target media literacy programs, for instance, we definitely need more transparency from big tech companies um, because while Facebook or YouTube, they sell basically all our data to advertisers, uh, to people who want to target us with marketing and ads on the platforms. They are completely opaque uh, when it comes to public interest research to uh, the kind of transparency that users would need, for instance, to better understand who is, uh, who is targeting them with what kind of information, who is paying for them uh, to see this information and all of this. So I think there's a whole bucket of responses that are also like traditionally discussed um, as, as solutions uh, to, to this challenge of disinformation. We have, yes, we have media literacy. I think media literacy won't work without better research. Better research won't work if we don't have transparency-oriented tech regulation. Cheyenne, what do you think? Have you, have you discovered something that makes you a bit optimistic about our digital future? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a complex question in the sense that there may not actually be an answer to it. Can it ever be completely stopped? I don't think so. Part of it is because of human nature, part of it because of, you know, the internet. And, and the other aspect of it is, again, there's a debate going on. Should the government, the state get involved in this, in this type of debate? You know, we live in free societies and we pride ourselves in the fact that we allow free speech and we allow citizens and our public to dissent on any major issue and, and go against the view of the state or the government or politicians. So should the government get involved? That's not for me to answer. Or should it be a civil society, journalists, experts, uh, you know, open source intelligence, uh, investigators? Is, it, is, is that, you know, schools, public education systems? That, that's a debate to be had, probably not for a policy <coughs> journalist to to say, you know, what, what, what is the right approach and what is the wrong approach? All I can say is the only way for me to, to find bad information is with good information um, rather than, you know, banning and basically restricting the right to free speech. And then there's a, there's a big debate about, you know, how can you spread good information and how can you, you know, it, it, we, we've been working on it, been trying, like we've been making these videos for basically any normal person who is not a journalist, who does not have any expertise in the area of disinformation, to just check simple stuff on the internet. You know, you see a viral video, you see a viral image. How can you check if it's real? How can you check if it's old? How can you check if it's taken uh, from another video, from a, vid from, from a video game, whatever, the, the type of things that we see. And, it, and it's not really that difficult. It's not that complex. So we hope that that can, that, that can help people, but 
you know, there shouldn't there shouldn't really be any, be any complex uh, complacency in terms of younger generations as well, because if you go back to this war, I mean, TikTok is by far, in my opinion, uh, has been the worst platform when it comes to the spread of online misinformation, and and that is a platform mainly and primarily used by younger generation, and and the volume and level of fake news that I've seen on TikTok, I haven't seen on Facebook, which has twice as many. Two, two and a half times as, as many users. The power of online falsehoods, uh, the power of viral false content is, is something that goes straight to the human psyche, frankly. We can talk about social media algorithms that definitely 100% play, play a role into it. Obviously, there are, in the, there are some social media companies that are working with independent fact checkers, but I know those fact checkers, I talk to them all the time. Uh, and I know how limited their resources are and how difficult it is for them to sift through a torrent, frankly, of, of misinformation on a daily basis. And they have to pick and choose and dedicate their very limited resources to just some examples and not all of them. So in the digital age, it is frankly a big issue. Can it, can it be completely stopped and countered? Probably not. We have to be realistic about that, but we can make sure that more and more people, regardless of age or their background, can learn to do fact-checking for themselves. If it can help people understand how to check, you know, how to, how to do reverse searching on, on the internet for both images and videos, how to read signs in videos that might indicate they're false, how to know sources and where stories come from, that, that, that will go a long way uh, towards basically making sure there's better information online. But we're not there yet. We're trying. Hopefully, yeah. You know, I'm I'm, I'm optimistic that, that that we'll get better at it um, over time, and particularly with uh, younger people who are much more adept at using the internet, far better than me. Hopefully, we'll get there. Thank you very much, Felix. Would you like to add something to that? I just want to add one quick note on the question of uh, regulation because uh, I think it's dangerous to equate check regulation with uh, limitations to the freedom of speech because right now the the way that these platforms are run amplifying the most extreme and violent content very often uh, we see major silencing effects which uh, usually uh, yeah affect uh, women people of color um not so to say the traditionally strongest segments of society who already are underrepresented very often in public discourse so when we talk about freedom of speech, first of all, I think we also need to always think about the freedom of speech of the silenced groups online. And uh, also there are other fundamental rights, especially in Europe, where we have a, a balanced approach to, to human rights um, that apply online and that we need to look after. That's the freedom from discrimination, the right to privacy and a lot of others. And I don't think, I think the past years have very clearly proven Uh, that tech, com tech companies are not by themselves willing or able to safeguard these rights for citizens and, uh, and users in particular. So that's just a little note I wanted to add. I, I think there's a very strong case for using the tool of democratic regulation to make social media platforms safer and more transparent. Thank you both. That was fascinating and really interesting. And I'm, what I'm taking away is that, yeah, we can be optimistic because... Uh, If those who are trying to undermine our way of living by disinformation are very creative, we are also very creative to find ways to counter that. Thank you very much, Stephanie, Cheyenne and Felix. Dear listeners, many thanks for tuning in to the latest edition of the German Embassy Staying Connected podcast. 
With this podcast, we want to highlight joint UK-German projects and topics that are of relevance to both our societies. Get in touch if you have ideas for future topics. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe. Bye.